Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. During those days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Uh, some of you have noticed that there's a rock up here. Um, <clears throat> this is uh, not for my protection. It's not a self-defense thing. Uh, it is just a symbol that tonight we're coming back to celebrate our 20th anniversary as a church here at Grace, that God has been gracious to us for 20 years of ministry, that we're praying for many, many more years of grace to continue doing ministry in this community as we continue to share the gospel with those around us. Um, I got a new haircut uh, in preparation for it. Um, A lot of you uh, have uh, noticed how short it is and commented how cool it is that I and the boys all got the same haircut. Let me just clarify. Um, The boys did not get a haircut like mine. I got a haircut like theirs. Can't have boys look better than me. So, okay. Uh, if you don't mind, let's just uh, just take this time and surrender our hearts, humble ourselves under the Word of God. We are people of the Word, and therefore we need to take time to just still ourselves and quiet before God. God, I am a dependent man on you. God, none of the words or insights I say today matter in and of themselves as them being my words about you. But God, your word matters. God, who you say you are matters. So Father, as we go verse by verse through uh, your word, God, as we go through Exodus, we pray, Lord, that you will change our lives, that um, we will realize, Father, we study scripture this way because we know that we do not know what's best for ourselves. But you do. So God, challenge us, and whoever may be here in whatever situations they're going through, I pray that Exodus 3 will be a message of hope to them, message of inspiration to follow you, and a message that will help them to worship you better. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. God does not leave his people with safety nets. He just doesn't. When it comes to trusting him, We must trust God and trust Him alone. I uh, recently had a great uh, just object lesson of this in my own life. In my front yard, if you've been to my house, you know that there are two trees in my front yard. On the one side, there's an old, wide-branched oak tree, and its limbs are low and thick. They they hang low to the ground, and they're optimal climbing trees. Um, uh, You probably, if you've driven by on on a Friday, you might even see me hanging out up there. Um, and my kids have discovered how much fun it is to climb the street just among the lower branches, of course, with me supervising them and being nearby. But during their first couple of tries, they would climb up into the branches and then realize it was much easier getting up than it was getting down. And so I was often called over, and not being that far away anyway, to come help them down. Uh, both of my children, because uh, Titus was too tiny to be up in limbs anyway, um, both of my uh, oldest children uh, were f- afraid of coming down. Um, Abigail was the most clear about her uh, fears, about her worries, and 
As I came closer, she began to hug the branch tighter. And she says, Daddy, you don't want to fall. She's hugging the branch tight. I'm right at eye level with her. And I look at her and say, Honey, I'm not going to let you fall. She hugs it tighter and tighter. And I move in closer. And she's hugging the branch. And I said, Honey, trust Daddy. Don't hug the branch. Hug Daddy. I'll get you down. It took lots of encouragements and affirmations. And finally, my, uh, my sweet little girl let go of the branch, wrapped her arms around my neck, and she got safely on solid ground. Now, here's the thing. My daughter had to come to terms with the fact that I was her best and only hope of getting down the tree without getting hurt. If she continued to hug the branch, she's going nowhere, right? We're, we, we understand that. If she continues to hug the branch, then she would go nowhere. If she tried to get down by herself, she risked sliding all the way down the tree, scraping herself and getting a nice little bump when she reaches the bottom. She had no other option but to trust me. So what guarantee does she have that I would not drop her? What assurance does she have that my promise was good and that she would indeed reach the ground safely? Now, my girl is a smart little girl. I could have come to her with all kinds of uh, factual reasons. Honey, you're only four feet from the ground. Did you know your velocity won't reach that fast and you won't get... I could have come to her by a whole bunch of facts, but I didn't come to her that way because at the end of the day, the only guarantee that I would not fail, the only assurance she had that she would not fall was that I am who I am. I'm daddy. I care more about her being probably than she does. Ultimately, Abigail had to learn that my promise that she would not fall was good because I am a good father. The only guarantee of my promise was me. Was me. Exodus 3 makes this very same point. In this chapter, God shows a very hesitant, untrusting frightened Moses that God himself is the only assurance that his promises would not fail. In this chapter, Moses grasped for confirmation, for some kind of certainty that God's promise of deliverance will indeed happen. And when Moses grasped for that confirmation, when he grasped for the affirmation, here's what he finds. God's name and nature is the only guarantee he has. And so here's the truth that God wants you and I both to learn today. And I say you and I intentionally. The guarantee of God's promises rests Not in outside circumstances. Not in my gift set. Not in my skill set. Not in my uh, uh, ability to do good things. The guarantee of God's good promises rests in God himself and in nothing else. How do we know God will do what he said he would do? Simple. Because God is God. God is who he is. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23, all the way to chapter 3, continue to prove this point, and it proves it in three ways. Uh, number one, it shows us that God is not static. He doesn't sit still, okay? God is not static. Number two, God does the impossible. And number three, God is God. So let's look at that first one. God is not static. 
Exodus chapter 22, verses 23 through 25. This is a great transition from what we studied last week about Israel's bitter burden and their slavery and and God um, helping them to grow despite Pharaoh's oppression. And here's what it says in verses 23 to 25. It says, during those days, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Now, the words, during those many days, we we might pass over that, but those words, being as concise as they are, are packed full of context. What does it mean by many days? Well, it means to the days that Israel was in slavery. It means the days that Israel was in Egypt's harsh oppression. It means the days that Moses was in exile, away from his people, and away from the ability to deliver them. What Exodus 2 calls Many days, Acts 7 calls 40 years. That's many days in Exodus chapter 2 is 40 years. How many are many days? It's 14,600 days to be precise. 14,600 days of brick making, of being beaten, of groaning under oppression, of being seemingly forgotten. So it would have been tempting in those days if we were 14,600 days in slavery. It might have been tempting for us to think God had forsaken us, right? God has forgotten us. Or worse, maybe he fooled us by giving us false promises. So what is going through the people's mind at this point? Has God forgotten them? Has God forsaken them? Has God fooled them? Now, there's some of you who know exactly what this is like. Those of you who've had long stints of suffering can sympathize. There are some in this place who have felt the pain of cancer and chemo for 730 days, two years. Others have gone 301 days without a job. Others have endured 1,400 days of fibromyalgia. Others have seen 3,000 grievous days pass without seeing their loved one. We know what it's like to suffer for many days, don't we? We can sympathize with that feeling. So what then? Has God forgotten you? Has God forsaken you? In all those many days of your trials and suffering? Did he fool you? And you're holding on to some kind of false hope as the days rack up from... Tens to fifties to hundreds to thousands of days now in suffering. Here's what Exodus 3, Exodus 2 and 3 would have you know. God has not forsaken you. God has not forgotten you. He does not sleep. He does not slumber. He does not sit still in our suffering. And especially in our suffering, God is not static. Quite the contrary. God is always actively working to keep his promises and to bring them to fruition. It was during that 14,600 days, those 40 years of slavery and groaning, that we are told what God was doing. Here's what it says in verses 23 through 25. Their cry for rescue came from slavery, uh, rescue from slavery came up to God. Listen to what God was doing. What were they doing? Groaning. 14,000 days of groaning. And what was God doing in those 14,000 days? And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. 
and God knew. The author's words about God fall like hammer strokes in this passage. Beating out the idea that they had been forgotten, forsaken, or fooled. God heard. God remembered. God saw. God knew. That's what God was doing in 14,600 days. He was listening to his people's cries. He was remembering and preparing his promises. Just like he remembered Noah in the ark as he's floating on the floodwaters. He's seeing, he's watching his people suffer. Every beat, beating that they get from an Egyptian rod. Every time they get spit at. Every time they get thrown into the mud. He sees it just like he saw Hagar in her wilderness. God saw it all, took it all into account, and God knew. My friends, I don't know what you're going through. There are 200 and something people who call this place their home, including kids. Some of you have scars of years of abuse. Some of you have scars from your own sins that you've done, addictions, pornography, whatever. Some of you have scars and and memories of things like childhood molestation and uh, being sexually abused, physically abused, emotionally abused, all those kinds of things. You have scars like that. You have job losses. You have pains. You have health issues. And I know that there are people in this room right now who are questioning, what is God doing? Let me answer for you. God hears you. God remembers you, God sees you, and God knows. That's especially true for his people, that he remembers. It's important to know that when Scripture says that God remembers, it's not saying that he at one time forgot. Remembers just simply means that he is now on the move, working to keep his promises, working to do as he said. And so just like the Israelites who suffered... 14,600 days. In this little stint of time, they suffered for 400 years. But for 14,600 days, we know that God was active, even though he seemed static. Even though it seemed like his promises were not moving. Believer, God has not forsaken you. He has not forgotten you. And he is remembering his promises day after day after day. We can trust in the midst of our sufferings and our hardships and our trials and our secret groanings that nobody else hears. That God is working out his promises for us. And we can let that heal us. God is working His ears, his eyes, his mind, his hands, in a spiritual sense at least, are bent toward keeping his promises. Do not let your situations, nor your sufferings, nor your hurts, nor your scars convince you that God is not moving. Because he is. Even when we don't see it. The second truth we should know about God is that he does the impossible. Exodus 3 begins, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
And the angel of the Lord, who, as we find out in all other scriptures, as, as actually God revealing himself to his people, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Now, far too often, we read the, the burning bush, and we, we kind of chalk it up to some kind of cool Christian novelty. Isn't it cool that our, you know, our faith has the burning bush? Nobody else does, and da, 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 it's here, it's ours, you know. Um, and we kind of chalk it up, just kind of a cool thing, but we, we fail to realize its significance. There's something, there's an object lesson in what God's doing through the burning bush. He's showing and giving an indication of what he's about to do for his people. First, whenever you see the angel of the Lord, you should immediately think of God. You see the angel of the Lord in multiple points in Scripture. And what's amazing about the angel of the Lord is he's worshipped. And he speaks about God in the first person. So this is God himself. So when we see the angel of the Lord in this fire, this is God revealing himself to Moses. This isn't the first time he's done it, and it's not going to be the last. In Genesis 15, God came as a fiery torch to Abraham, showing him that he was the God who would keep his presence. Later on in Genesis, he show, in Exodus, he shows up as the, the pillar of fire and the fire on Mount Sinai. So this is God. And in, in the New Testament, he's called all-consuming fire. So when you see fire in the Bible and it's attached to God, it's a symbol of God's white, hot, holy presence. Just keep that in mind. White, hot, holy presence. But then we have the bush. Uh, I, I, uh, Texas, at North Texas is not that much of a desert, but those of you who've been to West Texas, Texas know that desert bushes are easy to catch on fire, right? I mean, it's, it's, it doesn't take a genius to see that de- desert bushes when touched with a flame, should be nothing more than a heap of ashes. And so as we see this desert bush holding the holy fire of God and not being burned, we should be asked, how in the world is this possible? The only reason why it's possible is because God does the impossible. If he wills for his holy presence to rest, and that's an important word, to rest on a feeble, flammable bush and not burn up the bush, then he can do it. Now, why is this important? Here's why. What kind of holy, inapproachable, fiery God will be able to dwell, to rest upon his feeble, fragile, sinful people without consuming them? The same God who did that for the bush. God's presence can dwell in the bush without burning it up, and God can dwell with sinners without consuming them. Now, it's left all kinds of questions in our minds about how can a holy God and sinful people dwell together. And we find out later in Exodus 33 that when a holy God gets around sinful people, there's something inside of him that urges, let me go and consume them. Let me burn them up in my wrath. So how is God going to be able to replicate the burning bush with his people? How can God's white-hot holy presence rest with and on his people in the same way that his white-hot holy presence rested in and on the bush? At this point, we get to the truth of a mediator. Exodus tells us over and over again that God can dwell with his people 
and not burn them and not consume them because of faithful work with a mediator. Moses comes and he mediates for the sinful people and God agrees not to consume them, not to burn them up in his holy fire. But even further, you get to Jesus Christ who does it more perfectly, the perfect mediator, the righteous one who stands between God and men. And it's because of him that God's fiery presence is able to dwell on his people. Jesus died on the cross, was buried, rose again. And then guess what happened? Acts 2, 3, God's presence comes down in the form of what? Fire. And it rests where? On his people. My friends, you know what the burning bush tells us? That God can do with us what he did with the burning bush. That his white-hot, fiery presence can rest on his sinful, inadequate, feeble, flammable people. And not only that, he's going to make it happen. Why? Because God can do the impossible. My friends, if you don't see yourself as a sinner who deserves to be burned up in the very presence of God, you don't see yourself rightly. It is only God's goodness. It is only God's power. It is only God's commitment to dwell with you that makes it possible. It's going to be amazing as we go through Exodus and we see a God who who condescends in a sense, who allows himself to be wrangled by a mediator in a sense, to where he will dwell with his people and relate with them and not consume them. And now God's white-hot, holy presence dwells, rests upon his people. God does the impossible. Now let's clarify something real quick. God allows his presence to rest on the feeble bush, to rest on his feeble people as well. But he changes nothing about himself. It's not like God says, you know, I'm going to lessen the intensity of my holy presence so that it will dwell on the bush, so that it will rest with my people. He doesn't do that. He is the same intensely holy, almighty God he has always been. Here's the truth about God. He wants you in his presence, but you come into his presence On his terms, not on yours. Look at what he says to Moses. He calls out to Moses, Moses, Moses. And then Moses answers, here I am. Then God replied, do not come near. That's a threat. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you stand is holy ground. Now imagine if Moses would have just arrogantly said, God, I don't walk around without shoes. I'm just going to. Waltz in. Not only would have been dangerous, it would have been deadly. Moses would have experienced the white hot presence of God as it singed him. He's to approach God on his terms. This reminds me of the Lion of Narnia so much. The Lion of Narnia does not make himself safe or tame, but he is good. He's not safe or tame. God's presence doesn't become any less hot and holy than it did when he created the world. His presence is the same holy presence. And we come into the presence of God on his terms. I always think it's amazing 
when Americans like you and I tend to begin to think that we can negotiate our own terms in the God's presence. My friends, there is no negotiation. If you want presence with the king, you come to the king on the king's terms. You don't come in your terms. You come in his terms. Does he accept you just as you are? Yes, but you get in on his way. He says to Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses is absolutely appropriate in his actions when it says that Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Now this is a lost truth about God. He is the fearfully all-consuming fire. He's not your big fluffy bunny in the sky. He's a fearsome God, which makes it all the more powerful that this fearsome and mighty and fearful God will let people like us call him friend and father. My friends, think about what Moses, what God's words to Moses about take off your sandals. Think about what that means for us in our modern day. God has given us one way to approach him. One way. Jesus came to say, he didn't say, I am a way, a truth, a life. (laughs) He spoke definitively, I am the way, the truth, the life. Acts chapter 4 says, there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. We come to God on God's terms. We do not come to God negotiating our own. We do not come to God saying, God, allow me to have 50% of the stock of my salvation. We do not come to God saying, God, let me give you half of my trust. We do not come to God saying, God, let me trust in Jesus and myself. Let me trust in Jesus and my works. Let me trust in Jesus and my ministry. Let me trust in Jesus and my nobility. No, God says in his own terms and in uncertain terms, you come to him By one way. Take the sandals off your feet. For the ground on which you stand is holy. The same voice that said that. Is the same voice that said. This is my beloved son. In whom I am well pleased. My friends humble yourselves. In the presence of God. Don't walk into his courts with your sandals on. Approach him in reverence and fear and honor that he deserves. That's a mighty king. Trusting that he will dwell with you and his presence will rest on you, not because of what you do, but because of him alone. If you come into the presence of God in your own right, in your own skill, in your own might, by your own actions, by your own works, my friends, you will be burned up. God must establish his dwelling with us. We cannot establish his dwelling with us. It must be him, the God who does the impossible. Number three. And this is, I I love this as a pastor. I try to come up with creative outlines. And I was really racking my brain on number three. And I finally just gave up and said, God's God. (laughs) I find that to be the best answer in a lot of questions. A lot of people, how can you say that God did that? How can you say that God does this? How can you say that God is like this? God's God. 
This is the best answer I can give. Um, this is the third, the third important truth. God is simply God. God has already introduced himself to Moses as the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This connects him and his conversation with Moses with all the covenant promises with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has, God has promised to establish his dwelling. God has promised to send an offspring of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. God has promised to bring his people back to Eden. So what God is about to tell Moses has everything to do with covenant anticipation. Generations of people have been waiting to hear these words of God. Now, in, in verses 7 through 10, you'll find it sounds repetitive. It's because it is. In chapters two, uh, chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, God said that he heard, he remembered, he saw, and he knew, right? He repeats that for himself. Listen to what he says. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So here we have God. I have seen. I have heard. I know. And by saying that he has come down, he's basically saying, I remembered what I said I was going to do. And all of this happens because of why. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. That's the root of what he's done. He's heard, he's seen, he's saw, uh, he, I guess it's the same as seen, he's remembered, and he knows. Why? Because he's the God of Abraham. Now, Moses, you know, he's hearing this message, and buried in there is that little word, and I'm going to send you. Now, I, I can just imagine being Moses, 80 years old, shepherd, leather-skinned, shoes off my feet. Me? Me? And he says that, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Here's the important thing. This goes so much against our American individualism. It does not matter who you are. It matters who God is. It's funny. He says, who am I? And God answers by saying, this is who I am. God doesn't even answer the question that Moses is asking. God comes back telling him who he is. Here's what he says, and, and, and I think don't miss the fear and the apprehension and the, and the worry that Moses has. He's fearful. How does he know that if he jumps off the branch into God's, into God's promise, how does he know he's not going to fall dead in Pharaoh's courts? Well, here's how. Here's what God answers. But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people of Egypt, the people out of Egypt, and you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, notice that God doesn't come to Moses with all these comforting facts. He doesn't go, well, Moses, you know, Egypt's economy is kind of down right now, so this is a prime time to hit them where it hurts. Because it wasn't. They were great. 
He doesn't say, you know, Moses, Pharaoh's not that scary. That's not true. To any human man, he would have been. Instead, he gives the only reassurance and the best reassurance that Moses needs. But I will be with you. Do you hear that? The only guarantee God gives Moses is what? Himself. Unless God does it, unless God is present with his people, it will be absolutely unsuccessful. So how does Moses know that when God says, I will send you and you will deliver them out, that what God is saying is a guarantee? Here's how he knows. Because God will be with him. God gives himself as his own guarantee. Now, the only sign, signs in the Old Testament are proof that God is actually saying something and that he's going to keep uh, keep his word. It's, it's, it's like a um, <clears throat> validation uh, that he will indeed do. It's a guarantee. Um, notice that he says in, in the sign, the only sign he gives is, you shall serve God on this mountain. You know what that's like? That's like my little daughter stuck on the branch in the tree going, Daddy, how do I know I'll make it safely to the ground? And me answering, you'll know when you're safely on the ground. That's exactly what God does for Moses here. How do you know that I'm going to bring you to this mountain, deliver you from Pharaoh's uh, henchmen, deliver you from Pharaoh's oppression? You'll know when you're serving me on this mountain. God doesn't speak in hopefullys. God doesn't speak in maybes. God doesn't speak in probabilities. God says, you shall serve me on this mountain. Just like I tell my daughter, you'll reach the ground safely. And God's way better of a father than I am. So when he says it, we know that it's true. Now Moses was still scared, obviously. I don't think we would have done any better than Moses. I know for sure I wouldn't have. Maybe you would have. Um, but I know for sure I wouldn't have. Moses says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of my fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Now, here's, here's something funny. The people actually never ask him that question. This is, again, Moses in fear. What, what am I going to tell them, you know, God? When I come to them, they're probably not going to believe me. And I'm, I'm going to need some kind of name to give them. So what do I even tell them? Again, he's approaching God in this fear of what might the people say. And the people actually never say it. But God still answers the concern. Here's what he said. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now the words I am who I am can also be translated I am who I was. We translate it I am who I am, but it could also be translated I am who I will be. This is the God who was, who is, and who is to come. He's just simply saying, Moses, chill out. I am. I would have been like, you are what? (laughs) That's exactly the kind of question. God is who he is. God is who he is. God was, is, and will be the covenant-keeping God. He was the covenant-keeper for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the covenant-keeper, and he will be the covenant-keeper for his people. God was, is, and will be faithful. God is God. 
My friends, there's lots to be fearful about. If you're someone who's watched Fox News this week, CNN, um, I don't know, maybe you've read the Washington Post for some reason, and you've, you've, you've done all this, and this may be the first day that you've actually lifted your head up from the Kavanaugh debate. Let me just breathe this air of refreshment to you. How do we know that God will do what he said? Regardless if Kavanaugh becomes a judge or not, let's just, let's just lift our heads above that just a bit. We don't have to worry about who rules this country right now, right? We don't have to worry about which way the vote goes because it doesn't matter. Because <laughs> guess what? God is God. God is God. How do we know that racism will someday die in this land? How do we know that abortion will someday die in this land? How do we know that someday that sin and corruption and abuse and the, uh, the uh, Me Too movement will someday die in this land and no more will those things be spoken? Not because of who our politicians are, but because of who our God is. Now, what does that mean about your involvement in politics? I, I don't know. <laughs> Just do what you're doing. Be nice. Share the gospel. But don't act as if it all rides on this. Don't act as if it all rides on your guy or your lady or your president or the guy who's going to run against him. It doesn't ride on them. How do we know that God will keep his promises? Because God is God and everyone else is not. Verse 15 explains further. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is what's cool. God's promises are ancient, ancient promises. Go back all the way to the first couple, Adam and Eve. But those promises that he made in the ancient days are just as much on his mind in the present as they were in the day that he made them. God's not thinking, ah, I made that a long time ago. It doesn't matter. It was ages ago. No, those promises are still very, very much on his mind. He is working out those promises to his glory, even right now. They are on his mind. What a beautiful message. Moses gets to tell to the Israelites. Your God was, your God is, and your God will be. Will be what? Will be God. Now, God's faithfulness to his people requires his people's response. At the end of verse 15, God says, This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now, this is what's funny. God remembers his covenant for all generations and he expects all generations to remember his name. Now this begs to ask, just a, just a little self-soul searching here. I think all of us would say if we were pressed to it, do you believe that God has remembered you? Do you believe that God has remembered his promises? There's some of us who might speak in doubt at the beginning, but I think if we truly believe and trust in God and we trust in his nature, then 
most, if not all of us, would say, yes, I, I do believe that God remembers me, remembers his promises. Now the question needs to be asked, do you remember him? When we go through our difficulties, our discouragements, our sufferings, our afflictions, do we remember that he is the God who was, who is, and who is yet to come? When you get your pay raises, when you get your new toys, and you get your promotions, and you get your new car, and you get your bill of health that's clean and awesome, and all these good things that happen in your life, do you still remember that God is the God who was, the God who is, and the God who is yet to come? The only response, the only appropriate response to a God who remembers you at all times is for you to remember him at all times, whether those times be difficult or good. My friends, God has not forgotten you. May you not forget your God. Along with the message of his name, Moses uh, is to tell the people the same message he's been saying over and over, I've heard you, I've seen you. He says, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, my friends, I can tell what you're thinking. Haven't you already covered this? Can't we skip these verses? My friends, Exodus is repetitive because it knows that we're thick-headed. <laughs> this God, the God of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what you have done, what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he adds the sweet cherry on top. They will listen to your voice. And God tells it's not all going to be roses and cherries, though. Here's what he says. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and will strike Egypt with all the wonders that I do in it. And after that, he will let you go. He knows that Pharaoh will rebel. He knows that Pharaoh will fight. He knows that Pharaoh will be broken. And then he says, when he's broken, you're going to come out with great possessions. Isn't it cool? God spoke that little bitty promise about coming out of Egypt with great possessions all the way back in Genesis 15. When God told Abraham, generations before, probably, I don't know, maybe about 500 years, 600 years before that, said, hey, by the way, when they come out of the land that they're serving, they'll come out with great possessions. And then he tacks on there, by the way, you shall not go empty. You shall plunder the Egyptians. They who were humble and slaves will plunder the mighty. Why? Because God is God. Not even the smallest details of his promises are forgotten. Now the message of Exodus 3 speaks loads of hope into our fallen and painful situations. What confirmation do we have that he will do as he promised? How do we know that our sins have indeed been forgiven? Now you know just how sinful you are. And I, well, I say that. You know that you're a sinner. You might not know how sinful you are, but you are incredibly sinful. So how do you know that you actually have been indeed certainly 
forgiven. How do you know that we, as people of God, will have a place in the presence of God? What kind of affirmation can we find that His promises about resurrection and life everlasting are not false, that He hasn't somehow fooled us? How do we know that injustice will end and God's justice will roll down? How do we know that we'll have grace upon grace? How do we know that God can and will wipe away every tear and destroy death itself? We can know because God is God who is never static and who can accomplish his purposes. God's promises are certain because God is certainly God. God's promises are certain Because God is certainly God. He hears you. He remembers you. He sees you. He knows. That's good and bad. I just want you to know. If you're thinking, that's hope-filled. That's great. Well, remember that. When sin and temptation come knocking, God hears, God sees, God remembers, God knows. But I pray that for anyone here that might be hurt, might be oppressed, might be offended, might be scarred, broken, lonely, isolated. You might be isolated, but you're not unheard. You might be invisible to everybody else around you, but you're not invisible to God. You might be forgotten by your very best friends, but you are not forgotten by God because God does not forget His promises. There may be people who do not know your name, but God knows you. What then? When you are in the tree and there's no way down, let go of the branch and cling to the Savior. If you stay up there and you continue to cling to the branch, you're not going to go anywhere. If you try to get down yourself, you're not just going to get hurt. You're going to die in that self-independence. The only way and guarantee and assurance that you have that you will reach solid ground is that Jesus, according to Revelation 1.8, is the I am who was, who is, and who is yet to come. He is the Savior who guarantees you will get out of the tree and stand on solid ground again. He is the Savior who died for sin, was buried, and rose again. He is God. God is God. And He does not sit still. He keeps His promises. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, there are a ton of people here who are suffering from bondage. Some are suffering from the bondage of their own blindness. God, on the one hand, we have people here who think of themselves better as, than what they are. On the other hand, we have people who feel forgotten and forsaken and lonely and oppressed. And God, the message that you are who you are is a message to both of them. May we be humble, but may we be confident in the fact that you alone are God. You are the guarantee of your own promises. And we praise you for your son, Jesus, who came to die, be buried, and rise again for us. 
We pray this in our sons in your son's name. Amen.